The following program is for informational and educational purposes only. This program does not replace medical, mental health, or psychological diagnosis and treatment prescribed by your personal physician, psychologist, therapist, or other health care provider. Please consult your provider for diagnosis and care before beginning or changing any program or idea discussed. Welcome to Psych Up Live with your host, Dr. Suzanne Phillips. This is the show that brings you a psychological perspective on common and current life issues. Here is Dr. Suzanne Phillips. Welcome, I'm Suzanne Phillips. Thanks for joining me again on Psych Up Live. Today we're going to look at a very interesting topic from a psychological perspective. Why do so many people love horror movies, haunted houses, paranormal events, and creepy clowns. If you have ever paid money to be scared, or you can't imagine why someone would be interested in something terrifying, listen in. Our guest is Dr. Frank McAndrew, who is going to bring empirical evidence from psychological research to bear on the experience of horror. Dr. McAndrew is the Cornelia H. Dudley Professor of Psychology at Knox College and an elected fellow of several professional organizations, including the Association for Psychological Science. He's an evolutionary social psychologist whose research has appeared in dozens of scientific journals. He's often written widely for news outlets like Time Magazine, The Washington Post, The New Republic. His research has appeared on media outlets like The New Yorker, NPR, and NBC's Today Show. He was even lampooned by comedians Jay Leno and Conan O'Brien. Dr. McAndrew has lectured throughout the United States and in countries ranging alphabetically from Denmark to Tanzania. He is a return guest to Psych Up Live with an earlier fascinating show on the question of gossip. Dr. Frank McAndrew, it is my pleasure to welcome you back to Psych Up Live. Well, it's my pleasure to be back at Psych Up Live. Okay, so let's start with one of your favorite topics, horror movies. What makes them so alluring to people? Well, isn't that an interesting question? I mean, when you think about it, we spend good money to go and scare the daylights out of ourselves, to look at people we would avoid like the plague in real life, to uh, spend two hours vicariously in a place we would never go to. Um, and I've always been interested in why we do that and why it's exciting. And I think it taps into uh, something that was very adaptive and kind of bred into us um, early in our history as a species. If you live in a world full of risks, which we all do, you have to um, learn very quickly what you need to avoid and how to deal with dangers. And you can't always learn that in a trial and error sort of way, right? Uh, you can't experiment, um, well, how's, if I'm attacked by a lion, what should I do? Uh, you only get one shot. So we're kind of programmed to be fascinated in what happens to other people. This ties in with the gossip research that we talked about in my earlier appearance. Um, we're fascinated about uh, when we hear stories about people who survive shark attacks or uh, some other dramatic event, even if we don't know who they are. I think horror movies tap into that same psychological mechanism. By going to the movies and getting drawn into the story about the person being pursued by the serial killer or uh, lost in the haunted house, we can rehearse mental strategies that might help us in the future. 
if you happen to be pursued by a serial killer or lost in a haunted house, it's like mental rehearsal. And so people who are sort of programmed to pay attention to those things and enjoy them picked up valuable information that gave them an advantage over people who gave no thought to those things until it was too late. You know, what you're saying was confirmed, as I mentioned before, uh, my nephew is a, a producer of horror movies. One of them is Sweatshop. And the, the thing that he said that is so um, really uh, res- resonates so well with what you're saying is he says, inevitably, people come out of that show and say, you know what I would have done? I would have never gone in the basement or I would have never hitchhiked on that road. So just what you're saying is true, Frank. They actually put themselves in that spot and they have a chance to think through it in terms of the learning for protection, what they would have done and what the, the person in the show should or shouldn't have done. So it's really very interesting. Sure, and by talking about it after the movie's over, while it's fresh in your mind, it's a way of kind of cementing it into your memory. You know, mm. You're kind of locking it in. And while you're sitting there in the movie, if you're listening to the audience, you can hear them gasping and saying, no, no, right. when somebody's about to do the thing they think they shouldn't be doing. So, um, yeah, I, I think that's what it's all about, though. We're, we're drawn to these kinds of experiences because, in a, in a way, it's an educational experience for us. Mm. Now, one of the other things you say that is built into horror movies is our relationship with geography and architecture. There are certain elements in in horror movies that ramp up the creepiness, the horror, the fear, and we're also going to talk about them in Haunted Houses. Let's talk a little bit about that. Sure. Just as we're drawn to certain types of information about people because it's good for us where we need to be drawn to the right kinds of environments people who uh, do research on the relationship of humans to nature for example find a universal preference for things like fresh running water and vegetation uh, things that would have been good for survival Uh, people tend not to be as drawn to barren landscapes that don't look like they have a lot of resources there we don't like places that look like other people have violated because that presses buttons in our brain that tell us, oops, somebody else has already been here. All the good stuff must be gone. But in addition to those physical things like fresh water and vegetation, we're drawn to places that provide the right psychological characteristics. Environmental psychologists talk about uh, something called prospect and refuge. These are places that we seek out because they're safe. They've sometimes been described as a womb with a view. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a place where you can see without being seen or eat without being eaten. So you feel sheltered and protected, but yet you have a vista. You have a view of your surroundings so you can see things coming from a distance. Okay, so those are the kinds of places we like. The kinds of places we don't like are places that offer us very poor prospect. We can't see very far into them, and they're confusing. They're not laid out in a way that is easy for us to understand, so we feel like we can get lost. And the places offer a lot of refuge for creepy crawly things uh, that could be laying in there waiting to get us. So if you look at the cinematic haunted houses that you uh, see have seen in the movies forever, they're usually far away, right? 
think of Stephen King's hotel mm-hmm. up in the mountains in the winter or Hill House out there in the moor, you know, far away from the town. And therefore, nobody's going to be able to come and help you. And there are usually these big rambling places. They're dark. Uh, they're confusing. There's stairways that go to mysterious places and hidden rooms. And so uh, if you got in trouble there, it might be hard to find your way out. And there might be all kinds of places for bad things to hide. So right away, we're on our guard in a place like that. And Mm. they creep us out. We're uncomfortable because we know we're in a place that is bad for us. And when people are afraid of crime, they identify the very same features around them, you know, dark alleys, and so forth. It's interesting that one of the frightening scenes in John's movie, you'll appreciate this, is an elevator. The woman is stuck in an elevator, Frank, and the monster, of course, kills her in the elevator. So, I mean, there's no looking out. There's no refuge. There's nobody else there. It does capture that. It does. And talk about an uh, interesting way to get the shaft. (laughs) I I couldn't resist. Okay. Okay. Um, but yes, that, that you're trapped in a box. There's only mm-hmm. one way out, and if there's a monster blocking your way, it's over. Absolutely. You know, in terms of your research and, and your paper, which I encourage people to read, and we'll give them that information at the end, you talked about um, rats that were um, bred only in the laboratory, but instinctively, if you put them in a larger space, always stay near the walls to prevent and preserve, uh, protect themselves from predators. And even children hide in similar places. So th- what, what the horror movie picks up is very visceral and sort of inbred in, in terms of what we fear and what we find is safe. Sure. Kids love cardboard boxes and uh, making forts and hiding in vegetation and looking out. And Mm -hmm. even as adults, uh, if you go into a restaurant, everybody likes the corner booth (laughs) where you can have a view of the door uh, rather than sitting out in the middle of the floor where you're kind of surrounded by people on all sides and you feel very vulnerable there. Now, of course, you sit there if that's the only table left, but you prefer the snug prospect and refuse. Yes. Now, let's make a distinction between creepiness, horror, and fear. All right. I think creepiness and fear, I can very easily distinguish. Horror is not a, a, a concept, actually, that psychologists have talked about at all in any scientific way, but I'll give it my best shot. All right. Uh, fear is what happens when you're confronted with some sort of danger, you know that it's a threat, you know that you're in mortal peril, and you usually have some idea of what you need to do to try to escape. So there's no ambiguity about the danger that you face. If there's a bear charging at you, you know what's going on. With creepiness, it's much less clear. There's a lot of ambiguity. Uh, all of the warning signals that usually start, you know, flashing that danger might be here are going off, but it's 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 unclear. So when you're in the haunted house, you feel vulnerable. It's dark. You can't find your way around. There are places for things to hide. So it's creeping you out, but you don't know for sure that there's anything there to worry about. And it would be kind of strange maybe to go running and screaming out the door 
when there really wasn't a problem. Or if you're interacting with a person who's sending off a creepy vibe, well, maybe this is just an awkward individual and it would be kind of rude to scream and run away. But on the other hand, if this individual does pose a threat, maybe you should scream and run away. But what you end up being is frozen in place. You're kind of wallowing in discomfort because you're paying strict attention. You're trying to figure the situation out. So the big difference between creepiness and fear is the clarity of danger. Mm -hmm. In fear, you know what's going on and it's bad. In creepiness, your radar is up because the conditions are ripe for something bad to happen, but you don't know that that is going to be the case. Now, horror uh, is, I think, the transition between the two. When I'm being creeped out, whether it's by a person or a place, and suddenly I'm getting this dawning realization, I'm beginning to put two and two together and decide that there is, in fact, a real danger. I think that transitional thing we go through is what we usually describe as horror. Okay, okay. In your research on creepiness, um, it's so interesting. You found that generally both men and women find men to be more creepy than women? Yeah, everybody thinks men are bigger creeps than women. (laughs) Uh, And that's true whether you're a man or whether you're a woman. But it makes sense if creepiness is putting us on our guard against threat. Mm Mm-hmm. Men are simply much more threatening whether I'm a man or a woman. Now, I may there may be different threats uh, from a man to a woman or another man, but in both cases, you're more on your guard against the man than the woman. So I think it makes sense that uh, men are pretty creepy uh, compared to women. Not that women can't be creepy, but the bar is set higher. They've really got to show you something. It really fits even in terms of children and fairy tales. The most frightening fairy tale is when the good witch really is the bad witch in disguise. So that ambiguity of not exactly knowing really does rev up our sense of horror and fear. Well, and they're usually hidden in a big spooky castle or in the forest or some other place that brings all of the physical surroundings that scare us into play as well. Mm-hmm. And of course, one of the things that you mention in your writing is that being alone is very frightening. And you can know, we know that horror movies take advantage of this because if you're with someone else, you could, you could in some way deliberate with them as to whether do you think this is safe or not but when you're alone you have nothing else no other um, point of reference for whether or not the ambiguity or the creepiness of the situation is leaning more toward danger you're absolutely right in any situation where it's unclear what's going on our first impulse is always to turn to the people around us and discuss the matter or at least look around at other people to see how they're reacting in the situation. Now, this can have a downside. Um, We know all about the bystander effect, of course, where people are not very helpful when there's an emergency and somebody needs help. And one of the reasons that happens is we look around at each other and nobody seems to be too worried. So we kind of reassure ourselves that there's nothing to worry about. But our first impulse is to seek the calm, you know, the group wisdom. Let's Let's share notes here and see what's happening. And if you're all alone 
you don't have that. You mm-hmm. just don't have that going. Mm-hmm. Yep. We're going to take a brief break. You've been listening to Psych Up Live. We're here with Dr. Frank McAndrew, and we're talking about haunted houses, horror movies, phenomena that we sometimes will pay to see, um, and sometimes we are just too frightened to see. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Have you ever experienced the joy of living? Not just aspects of your life, but the true joy of life itself. Barry Shore has. You could call him an ambassador of joy. From a successful entrepreneur to becoming a quadriplegic due to a rare disease to his ongoing recovery through swimming and physical rehabilitation. Barry now presents his gifts to others as host of The Joy of Living. All you need to do is tune in. Listen live every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Planning for college? Tune in to Getting In, a college coach conversation for tips, techniques, and insider perspectives. Hosted by Elizabeth Heaton, a former admissions officer at the University of Pennsylvania, and featuring her fellow admissions and college finance experts from Bright Horizons College Coach. The show shares what colleges are really looking for and how to highlight your hard-won achievements for the best chance at success. New episodes air every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Are you finding your frequency? It can be described as that space between failure and success. It's the future of digital media. It's finding your voice. It's engaging topics, content, and ideas. Jeff and Ryan discuss the digital media space and all of its aspects. It's about making the mistakes, taking the chances, summoning the intestinal fortitude to step out of your comfort zone, and discovering what you can accomplish when you decide to try, decide to learn, decide that you have something to say, and find your frequency. Live Fridays at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time, on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now, back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back to Psych Up Live. We're speaking with Dr. Frank McAndrew about horror movies, haunted houses, and the social psychological phenomenon that underscores many of them. We were mentioning at the break that um, my nephew, who is in movies, mentioned that one of the things that people seem to get out of horror movies, Frank, is that jolt. He called it a startle response. I would call it a fight-flight response, certainly a hypervigilance, you know, with some adrenaline pumping. Um, do you think that that's a big pull for those people seeing horror movies? Absolutely it is. That's what you go for. That's why you ride roller coasters. Uh, you right. go for the excitement. You go for the adrenaline rush. And 
what adrenaline does is to turn up the volume on whatever feelings you are already having. So if you're in a real life situation that's very unpleasant, uh, having your arousal level shoot up like that makes it even more unpleasant. On the other hand, if you're out uh, having a, a wonderful time, you're at an exciting party with people that you really enjoy, having that rush of adrenaline and having your heart beat faster makes you like it even more. In the safety of the movie theater, where you're engaging this psychological mechanism that enjoys uh, being teased by horror like this, the adrenaline makes it much more uh, involving and much more exciting, and it, it gives the people what they want. Nobody likes to come out of a movie theater after a horror movie saying, boy, that was really boring. Um, <laughs> right. You're there for that rush. So, yes, that's a big part of it. And every once in a while, they'll resort to a, a cheap startle trick. You know, something jumps out at you from the screen just to, to make sure that you, you're still with them and that the arousal levels are where they need to be. But the unpredictability of the startle is the key thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I mentioned before I had a patient who really struggled with depression, but one of his one of his strategies to help, a coping strategy, was he would go to a horror movie and he would report, I went in depressed, I came out feeling a little better. And I would think, okay, you know, if that adrenaline rush and that sense of the unknown got him off the ruminations and into another body and mind experience. All good is what I thought. Yeah, yeah, sounds good. The, the other thing that people mention is that sometimes horror movies are a cathartic way of really dealing with anxiety. And we were mentioning at the break, lately, people are going to see, or they're replaying rather, Contagion, Outbreak. It can't be coincidence given we're dealing with a pandemic. Well, yes, uh, it's on people's minds, and I would expect zombie movies to start making a big comeback as well. Mm-hmm. Because when you th- when you think about a zombie movie, it's exactly like a pandemic, right? You're dealing with something that gets transferred very directly from person to person, mm. and somebody who is perfectly safe today might be lethal tomorrow, and the only way to stay safe is to stay away from people. And you're not usually sure how this whole thing started. You don't know how long it's going to last. So when you think about it, the zombie movie is the perfect pandemic experience. So, Mm. uh, yeah. And that's why zombies, I think, are um, they never go away because a lot of things scare us. But zombies scare us and creep us out at the same time because... Mm. Are they dead or are they alive? Are they human or are they not human? Mm -hmm. Uh, Again, the ambiguity that feeds this creepy crawly discomfort is, Mm. yeah. So now you talk about something that applies to haunted houses and horror movies, and and we're going to talk about creepy clowns. You call it the agent detection mechanism, Frank. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Sure. And humans are not the only animals that have agent uh, detection mechanisms, but if we're going to make a mistake, we want to make a mistake in the safe, cautious direction. So again, think about the world in which we evolved. If you're walking through the forest at night and you hear some bushes rustling off to the side, well, it might just be the wind, it might be a small animal running around, or it could be a predator or an enemy laying in wait to get you. But just from the sound that you're hearing, you can't tell what that is. 
Well, you had better act as if there is danger there. And if it turns out you're wrong and a rabbit runs out of the bush and that's all it was, you haven't lost anything. But if you just shrug your shoulders and say, ah, it's probably just a rabbit, and you've made a mistake in the other direction, it may be the last mistake you ever make. And so people got weeded out who did not respond in the most cautious way. We're descended from cowards, if you want to think about it that way. Um, The people who immediately got scared and Mm. assumed the worst, because if they were wrong, nothing bad happened to them. But the people who weren't afraid and then were wrong, something did bad happen to them, and those genes got weeded out of the population. So, the agent detection mechanism exists to keep us safe. But with our imaginations combined with the agent detection mechanism, when you're in an ambiguous place, you're in this house, and you hear creaking sounds and blowing sounds and sounds that sound like voices, um, then you immediately start assuming there is something there for this very same reason you assumed that there was something bad in the bushes. Mm. Now, based just... Picking up on that, you did one very interesting blog called, Why Does the Belief that a House is Haunted Persist Long After Investigations of the Case Reveal It to Be a Little Bit More Than Just a Story? That's right. You know, these never go away. Uh, The most famous haunted house stories like the Amityville Horror and all that have long ago been exposed as... um, outright frauds or at least overblown, but we just don't want to let it go. And people can actually haunt their own house. If you are living in a place and you believe that it's haunted and you believe in ghosts and things like that, then whenever there's that ambiguous sound or unexpected occurrence, uh, right away your agent detection mechanism clicks on and puts you on your guard against, in other words, you're assuming the worst. Mm-hmm. I was so interested in the Amityville horror because I live near Amityville. And so to, to find out that the lawyer from of the man who, who murdered the original family and the family that moved in were in cahoots to make this a haunted house was shocking, even more shocking what you said. doesn't matter. People still assume this is the place to go on Halloween. Oh, yeah. And, and the media is complicit in that because... Yes. Uh, it's a it's a better story to tell that there's a haunted house and it, you know it's just it's just not fun to uh, be the killjoy that comes out and says ah there's nothing to it and so when the media does sort of correct their earlier story it's usually buried and not trumpeted to the world because that's not what people want you know mm-hmm. <laughs> so let's go to clowns what's the deal with clowns. Uh, yeah, what indeed is the deal with clowns? <laughs> uh, well, they've been around for a long time. Uh, the first people who we would think of as being clownish uh, go all the way back to ancient Egypt, as far as you know, the ones we know about, and they were never designed to be good. I mean, their role was to poke fun at people in authority and to play pranks and to entertain, and they incorporate a lot of the things that we automatically are put on our guard against. They don't play by the rules. They don't wear normal clothing. They -hmm. have this makeup on so you can't tell who they are and you can't tell what their emotions really are. They have a smile painted on their face. But are they really happy? You don't know. And so 
they're right away uh, doing all of the things that would make us apprehensive about being around them. And for good reason. If you go to the circus and the clowns pull somebody out of the audience, you know that nothing good is about to happen, right? <laughs> and so uh, the recent business, I've, I've gotten into some trouble with clowns. I don't know if you want me to get into that story or not. Sure. Some years ago, I guess it was in 2016, when the whole clown, killer clown thing was going on, creepy clowns showing up everywhere. It was mm. in the news and there were sightings. Um, I was asked to write an article about, well, why would people be creeped out by clowns? Now, I'm not the one that's deciding clowns are creepy, but given that some people feel that way, why might that happen? So I wrote this essay, uh, The Daily Beast, I think is the one that asked me to do it. And suddenly I became the poster boy in the clown world for the guy that was destroying their career. And there was this uh, ringleader clown who kind of got a whole bunch of them riled up and they started harassing me on social media everywhere I could be found, leaving messages on my voicemail at work. They went so far as to call the president and the dean of my college. Uh, I don't know if they were trying to get me fired, but they were certainly trying to get me in trouble. And by the way, all of this is in an attempt to show me that they're not creepy. <laughs> and yes. uh, to the, yeah, to this day, my wife and I are terrified this tiny little car is going to pull up in front of our house in the middle of the night and all these clowns are going to pile out seltzer bottles and pies, you know. Well, it's very interesting, but people do buy the, the fear factor more than they buy the, hey, let's, he's wonderful at the, at the circus. I asked someone, what do you think about clowns? And she said, you can't trust clowns. They're lying. Their face stays the same. You don't know what they feel. So it is that perfect theme of ambiguity. And as you say, people with enough associations and enough horror movies, clowns are not associated with wonderful things. No. And they've got a license to be naughty, right? They, mm. they, don't, they don't dress like we do. They're you know, allowed to break the rules, and who knows what rules they will break. Mm. And it depends on where you're seeing them. I mean, if you go to the circus, you know you're right. going to see clowns there. But when you see one hanging around in, under the streetlight on your block in the middle of the night, that's a whole different story. <laughs> I would think so, yeah. So let's go from clowns to ghosts. You did another piece on why are some people more likely to see ghosts and other paranormal presences? Yeah, I'm um, not so sure that I would go so far as to say that there's sort of a ghost personality, but there's a combination of things where, um, you know, if you put the right people in the right place, uh, some people are going to see the ghosts more than others. Now, first of all, uh, you want to be in a place where there is some ambiguity going on. Uh, You want to be able to interpret the events you're feeling, the cold spots or the sounds you're hearing as ghosts. But the person has to believe in ghosts for that to happen. So if you don't believe that ghosts are real, whatever it is that's going on, you're going to look for other explanations for. But if you believe in ghosts and you're in a place where people say ghosts are, then right away you're searching for evidence that that's the case. (coughs) Excuse me. And so... um, I think first that belief has to be there, but then what you think you're seeing depends a little bit on uh, what you believe about the nature of the world and the supernatural. I did write a piece on the role that religion plays. Mm. And in some religions, 
uh, it's not that the ghosts are actually the souls of dead people who are either revisiting uh, people from their previous life or uh, being cursed to roam the earth in some way. But in other religions, the um, ghosts aren't the souls of actual people. They're uh, spirits or demons of some sort, uh, still supernatural beings, but not former people. And then, you know, there's all different kinds of ghosts. Uh, poltergeists are kind of more like a supernatural force of some sort. They're not actually, you know, the souls of a, a living, once living individual. And uh, some ghosts haunt individuals, right? Uh, they show up in your dreams. They show up at unexpected places. Other ghosts haunt a place, and whoever happens to come along can be, you know, haunted by them. Mm-hmm. I thought it was interesting. Tell me if this is a correct article that you were saying. It's not. It's a believer, but it's not necessarily a devout churchgoer, who seem to be the most perhaps. Um, likely to experience this or to believe in ghosts. And it's also someone who has a a considerable amount of um, empathy. Or now maybe that's the sensed presence, because that's something else that actually I've had the experience of people reporting that to me, the sensed presence of someone there, particularly after trauma and tragedy and disaster. It's the sensed presence of a partner, And there for a good reason, to help them decide what to do or to support them in some way. People who have described in the trauma work I do this feeling of that person being with them, they don't describe it in a haunting, frightening way. No, as a matter of fact, uh, grieving individuals um, are the ones, are among those kinds of people who are most likely to um, experience this. And... um, Especially if you've got a person who's lost a loved one that they depended on greatly, and they're kind of shut off from social contact without that person, so they don't leave their home, and the loneliness and the isolation kind of works on you. You kind of Frank, focus. I'm going to interrupt you for a minute because I see that we're out of time, but I want to come right back to this idea of the sense presence. You've been listening to Psych Up Live. We're with social psychologist Dr. Frank McAndrew, and we're talking about a range of things from horror movies, haunted houses, and now we've been speaking about a sensed presence of someone. Stay with us. We'll be right back with more. America is on your favorite smart speaker. If you have Alexa or Google Home, go ahead and give us a try. Hey Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast on TuneIn. On Read My Lips Radio, producer and host, aka Radio Red, invites you to eavesdrop on her live, unscripted conversations with smart, savvy, creative people as she discovers what makes them tick, where they find their inspiration, when creativity first became their passion, and how their creative process can inspire the rest of us to think out of the box. Enjoy, aka Radio Red's always lively, cool conversations with creatives. Mondays at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Variety Channel. Oh, how those lips can talk. If you are working on your path to enlightenment, may we suggest another guide point to help you get there? 
It's Soul Healing Conversations with your host, Roz Kincaid. Roz and her guests are making this show a safe place to find balance, healing, and transformation. You'll learn how to manifest the best version of your life. Make sure you join Roz every week for Soul Healing Conversations, live every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 12 noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Don't you sometimes wish that you could just cut through all of the BS that life brings? Get rid of that BS when you tune into No BS Talk. Your hosts, Julie Turner and Brad Lovell, demystify the mixed messages of life. Topics include sleep, nutrition, relationships, and more. It's the great stuff that should have been taught in school, but somehow got missed. Catch up with No BS Talk every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Pacific Time and 5 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Psych Up Live. Join in our conversation today by calling Dr. Suzanne Phillips or her guest at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Now, back to Psych Up Live. Welcome back to Psych Up Live. We're speaking with social psychologist Dr. Frank McAndrew. I was just mentioning to Frank that in the trauma work I have done over all these years, people have at times talked about the sense of a sensed presence of their loved one, being with them in a, in a very supportive way, very rarely in a frightening way. Let's talk a little bit about that, Frank. Sure. Uh, And actually, there are studies that indicate that uh, almost half of widowed elderly Americans experience a hallucination of their departed spouse at some point, usually in the first few weeks after the death. Uh, And you're right, these after-death communications appear to be a healthy coping mechanism. It's a normal part of the bereavement process. Uh, It's not a frightening experience. As a matter of fact, the person often feels reassured by it. And it's more likely to happen when we've got an individual who's been widowed and they live alone and they don't have a lot of social contact. So they're at home a lot. The sensory stimulation they're getting is never changing. And so their attention tends to turn within rather than processing information from the outside world. And uh, we're not used to thinking like that. Mm-hmm. I think and since we're talking about movies, you made reference to Sandra Bullock in Gravity, where she's just about figuring she's going to die, and George Clooney shows up as the sensed presence. Yep, and he gives her advice and gives her a pep talk, and they make a plan, and then she gets through it. And this is another very commonly reported experience um, by individuals who are by themselves in extreme harsh environments. The most most common places you see this are in high-altitude mountain climbers, uh, but you also find it in solitary sailors, uh, these people that are trying to go around the world in a small boat all by themselves. Uh, a lot of things seem to be playing at once here. Again, you've got the lack of social contact and the focusing the attention within the self. Uh, but there's also a lot of physical things. Um, the air might be thin, so you're a little oxygen-deprived. Uh, your body temperature 
uh, might be lower. So you've got some hypothermia going on. And if this is combined with a lot of hardship and stress, uh, if you've landed someplace because of a plane crash or a shipwreck, the um, high levels of stress combine with these environmental features uh, to produce this experience of a sense presence. People actually see and have conversations with um, people, and it's always a reassuring, comforting thing. Uh, the person or the sense presence is there to help. And it varies in intensity. Some individuals report this feeling that there's somebody behind them, and they keep whirling around, and it's almost like they experience seeing somebody out of the corner of their eye just disappearing. Uh, other people have this face-to-face -face, you know, conversation with a, what seems to be a real flesh and blood person. A lot of Mount Everest climbers mm. uh, in the past have reported stories like this. And some who've died, uh, they found diaries that they were keeping where they reported um, encounters they had. Oh, it's so interesting. Now, in terms of the work you've done in, in para paranormal experiences, um, horror movies, haunted house, what did you personally find most surprising? That's an interesting question. I don't know that I've ever thought about that. Um, I guess the idea that all of us can have these experiences given the right circumstances. I think at first glance, it's easy to say that there are some people that just kind of lend themselves to this, but other people would never have that experience. I think putting anybody in the right circumstance uh, with the right amount of stress hormones, racing, and isolation, uh, they're going to have these kinds of experiences. So the idea that it can happen to any of us, I think, was probably the most interesting thing for me. You know, one of the things that I've wondered about is the cultural un underscoring of certain belief systems. When we did an intervention after the earthquake in Haiti, part of the panel that we had, one of the women on it was a voodoo princess and a psychiatrist. And she was brilliant. Um, and she spoke about, you know, um, the belief system. And I was then later in a cab with a um, cab driver. And of course, as usual, I'm interviewing them or they're interviewing me. And I asked about voodoo. And he explained that, well, you could be Catholic and you still believe in voodoo. And he said, and if I should have a dream, I must go to the home of the person in the dream to report this to him, to them. And I thought there are some cultures where this is just very much in the forefront and very accepted. Do you think our culture is moving more and more toward a belief in the paranormal or a need for horror movies as a genre than it was, let's say, 50 years ago? I don't know that we're changing all that much. I think Americans have always um, been up for a good horror story, and a surprisingly large percentage of the population does believe in ghosts and paranormal kinds of experiences. Um, going back to the War of the Worlds, the famous radio show where they believed that Martians were invading uh, the United States, uh, that's a long time ago, but people were very quick to jump to these conclusions that there's a scariness um, uh, among us. So I think we, what we find to be scary may change over time, and we certainly have different technologies to d deliver the goods to us, but our um, interest in just wanting to know there's something else out there that we don't understand. I mean, the Loch Ness Monster, the Bigfoot, uh, we, we love these things. 
Mm-hmm. Maybe we, we would say, do you think that part of the function of horror movies, even haunted houses, is that given the day-to-day, given the struggles of day-to-day, we do need a distraction. And whether it was the tall tale told around the fireplace or, as you say, the War of the Worlds on the radio, I wondered how many people, even in this situation that we're in, in the pandemic, need to at times turn to a distraction. And this type of distraction is very different than a love story or a comedy. This is riveting and jolting. So it really pulls you out of your psychological space in some way. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I, I'm i just giving an opinion here, but I would think perhaps we'd be less interested in horror movies right now than we will be when this whole pandemic has passed. Because now it's a little too real and maybe a little too threatening, but maybe a year or two down the road when uh, the worst has passed and we have a vaccine, uh, people can reconnect with the anxieties they ha- we're having now and it'll be much more entertaining than it would be right now. I, I guess you might be right, because when you think of when outbreak and contagion came on, I think it's after SARS, it's after HIV, it's after Ebola. So it was predictive in some way, but um, maybe it can be too, something that it moves from being interesting to too close. Maybe it's like the other phenomenon you're talking about. It could be creepy, but if it starts to feel dangerous, it's a different experience. Well, and I think you use the word escape. Uh, to escape from the pandemic by going to see contagion is not giving you much of an escape. Uh, so I think we're more likely to try to escape to a very different type of experience. Well, I wondered if it made you feel some sort of sense of um, mastery that you could walk out of the theater and walk away from it. But uh, <laughs> your point is well taken. They, they talk about people watching it, but I'm not sure. I think most people are binge watching Netflix, actually. Yeah, uh, comedies may be doing well now. Who knows? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So in terms of children and exposure to horror movies, what would you say? I mean, I, I, I over the years, people have said the the movie that scared me was Psycho or the movie that, that made me never want to watch another horror movie was such and such. Do you think that there's an age that people should consider in terms of their children in watching horror movies? I think it varies greatly. Um by the child. I have a seven-year-old granddaughter and she's terrified of everything. I mean, if there's a kid's book that has a scary looking wolf in it or something, she lays awake at night thinking about it. And Mm. uh, even a cartoon like Garfield's Halloween, she finds absolutely terrifying. But she's old enough that I, I don't think most kids at that age should be that afraid of things. So I think you have to play it by the kid. Um, I think the the magic thing is when the kid begins to realize that these things aren't real and can't be real, that's when they start to become fun. Mm. When they're they're living in a world where, um, you know, the Tooth Fairy and the Easter Bunny and Santa Claus and everybody are around, well, if those things are real, why not (laughs) these other scary things also being real? Mm -hmm. So I I think... um, it, it might be at a, come at a different age for different children. I think it does. And I think it depends on how much a child ruminates about things and how good a memory they have in terms of remembering the details. Some kids, maybe your granddaughter can tell you every detail and someone else, 
no, not really. <laughs> they yeah. didn't mind it. Well, that's right. So, yeah. you know, How much so attention that, they're paying. Right, right. So that really plays a part, too. It, it's just an interesting answer that you're giving. Um, well, let me ask if you could give our listeners a take-home message, and then we're going to ask you how you we can find you online and read some of these wonderful articles. What would be your take-home message with respect to why do people pay to be scared with horror movies, haunted houses, creepy clowns? Well, whenever uh, you find yourself not being able to resist something, it's playing into a part of who you are, part of human nature. And so I think sometimes people feel a little embarrassed to admit that they like certain types of music or experiences because it seems sort of lowbrow or unsophisticated. Uh, let that go. It's If you're enjoying it, uh, that's all that matters, and it's letting you express part of who you are. So uh, let yourself off the hook. Mm-hmm. It's okay to like these things. I it's think natural. so. It's not a character flaw. And you're not alone. <laughs> that's right. You're definitely not alone. Um, now, how can people find these very interesting articles and blog posts that you that you've written? Well, um, I'm I'm pretty easy to find on the internet. Uh, I have a web page. Uh, frankmcandrew.com, and you can get links to almost everything that I've written one way or another through there. I also have a blog for Psychology Today magazine, so uh, you can go to their website and find me there as well. So uh, those would be the two logical places to look. I'm on Twitter as well. So my Twitter handle is uh, ftmcandrew. I really encourage you to look up Frank because we just touched on some of the very interesting blogs he's written in a, in a wide range of areas. So it's worth your while to check him out. Frank, I want to thank you for coming back to Psych Up Live. Thank you. It's always fun. Okay. I want to thank my listeners. And remember, you can hear this and any prior show as a podcast on my host site, my website, and on the podcast app of your iPhone, on iTunes, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, just about all of them, Amazon Alexa, iHeart. Remember to drop me a comment or a question at radiohostphillips at gmail.com. Mostly until next time, please be safe, thank you, and be listening. Thank you for tuning in to Psych Up Live. Please join Dr. Suzanne Phillips for another edition of our programming next Thursday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Until then, be well and be listening.